Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is B.J. Fogg, a behavior scientist and author. At Stanford University, B.J. runs the Behavior Design Lab. He also teaches his models and methods in graduate seminars. On the industry side, B.J. trains innovators to use his work so they can create solutions that influence behavior. His focus areas have included health, financial well-being, learning, and productivity. But B.J. has been increasingly concerned about climate change and wanted to help, so with his new book, Tiny Habits, finished and now in production, he finally has the bandwidth to start a training series focused on climate action. He's making this training completely free to people focused on climate change and applying behavior change to further the cause. And he's also got his colleague with him, Will Shan, who's an undergrad at Stanford and has been project managing this training effort. BJ and Will, welcome to the show. Jason, thanks for having me. So this is a first on the My Climate Journey, which is trying to do a podcast with more than one guest at once. Well, that's great. So we'll see how this goes. You guys are guinea pigs. (laughs) We're ready. I like being a guinea pig. Let's go. Yeah, I don't know what it says about me, but this is the most exciting thing that's happened to me in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure sure that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) So I was... Super excited to hear from you, Will, when you reached out and and told me a bit about what you and and BJ are doing. I think consumers' role or our role as people in the climate fight is a subject of much debate. But for this episode, given that you guys are relative newcomers to the climate space, but BJ, you're one of the world's foremost experts in human behavior change. Who, who now is concerned about climate and thus figuring out how to apply that to helping people change their behavior to help the problem, I think we're going to assume for purposes of, of this discussion that human behavior change does matter, which I believe that it does. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really focus on how to change that behavior if that works uh, for, for you guys. Perfect. So what's good we did that prep call so we could tease out that little disclaimer up front. Yeah, it was so fun. I mean, Jason, it's so great to be talking to you. Will and I at Stanford. Stanford's really, I think, all about creating leaders of the future who will make the world a better place. And Will is such a great example of a young person, just a standout person who wants to do good things. And in my work, I've always been, how do I play what I've learned and what I know to help people be happier and healthier? And the whole climate change, climate action is just We've got to put our talents and our energies there. And that's that's why we're here. And thank you for inviting us onto your podcast. Well, I think as I told you a little bit before we started recording, you're also a good example of you know what I'm seeing increasingly happen, which is people that have reached the pinnacle of their craft, whatever it may be, who are concerned about this problem and figuring out how to mobilize themselves based on their unique expertise to help in the climate fight. And I know you're just on the front end of that journey, but I also think that, I mean, much like me, who's been kind of learning in public and that's been building a following of people that are on a similar journey as me, I think there'll be many people, uh, especially of of the listeners to this podcast, that are on the same journey as you. So your story is a really relevant and well timed one. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody has all the pieces of the puzzle. 
but we all need to bring the piece that we have and put it together to try to solve this. this it's super important. So before we talk about climate change, why don't we talk about your piece of the puzzle to maybe talk a bit about your work and how you got to be doing the work that you're doing now? Yeah, really fast version. So it was in the 1990s that I had the insight that technology would be used to influence people's attitudes and behaviors. And so as a doctoral student, I ran true experiments to understand how this might happen, how it might play out. And indeed, the experiments showed that computers could influence people to think in new ways and behave in new ways. And at the time, people thought the research was crazy and people really, well, not everybody, but it was like, wow, this is weird. And some people didn't believe the results. Fast forward to today, that's pretty clear. We're influenced by technology. And so I created a lab at Stanford and directed that lab. It was called the Persuasive Technology Lab until, until about 2010. And that included doing a project that was about world peace. So as we were discovering, wow, you can influence people's behaviors. Let's apply it to the most important problem. This would be early 2008, and we took on world peace. And that work continues in a new lab called the Peace Innovation Lab, headquartered in The Hague. So I do think in my lab and the people working with me, we have a long thought, well, how do we use what we're learning for the most important problems in the world? Fast forward to today, the lab is now called the Behavior Design Lab because we don't really look at technology so much. It's just how do we help people change behavior for the better and that the time has come that we need to apply what we're doing and what we know in our research toward looking at the uh, climate change issues and doing everything we can there. And maybe talk a bit about that transition from from the persuasive technology to more just looking at how to drive behavior change in a, in a holistic way, and actually maybe talk a bit about the work around that persuasive technology. That So both talk about that, but then also what led to the transition and, and what the transition means practically. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's like five questions. Right? <laughs> I, I have a bad habit of doing that. Yeah. One question at a time, Jason. Well, so as it turns out... <laughs> I need behavior change help on asking <laughs> single questions at a time as a podcast. Yeah, you're host. really offering me a menu, and I, I'm just wondering which question to go for first. I'll just answer it this way. I wrote a book called Persuasive Technology in 2002. And when I released that book, well, first of all, back to my dissertation... When my dissertation came out in 1997, in the back of it, I have 10 pages of a storyboard. They allowed me to do cartoons and like create a storyboard in the back saying, here's how we can use the power of persuasive technology. And the story I tell for 10 pages is this character named Sue, who had this device that she would carry around or wear, and it would coach her how to be healthier. And there was a virtual coach that was an AI figure and there was a real doctor and there was a friend and all these things would happen to help Sue get healthier. And I called it team fit. And I thought by sharing that vision that people would immediately start implementing it. Well, they didn't. That was actually 1996 when I sketched out that storyboard. And that's that vision recently is now a reality, but 20 plus years later. Then when I published my book, Persuasive Technology, same kind of story. So I put together, I laid out the, it's like, here's what technology can do, including here are the downsides, here's the ethical issues and so on. And I thought policymakers would start regulating as soon as they saw the potential pitfalls. And I thought companies in health and other areas, including climate, climate's a category in the book, would start 
leveraging that. And the response to the book in 2002, 2003 was like crickets, like nobody really cared. And it was just a different era. It was everybody was concerned about usability and user friendliness. Big lesson to me is you can be too far ahead of things. It had the book come out 10 years later. It would have been right when the wave was cresting and when people were really concerned about technology's impact on behavior. But at the time, nothing much. So my work continued and the lab's work continued. We look at web credibility and other things. And then one year Stanford, I taught, this is where the transition happened, I think. I taught a class about health and health habits. And I just got really interested in that. And it really had nothing to do with technology or persuasive technology. How do we understand habits and how do we help people design these habits? And then that led to some new work in our lab called the Behavior Wizard, which you can still find at behaviorwizard.org. And at that point in 2010, we're like, man, we're not doing persuasive technology anymore. And we renamed the lab in 2011 to be the Behavior Design Lab because we didn't see technology as the lens through which our research would be focused. And yes, technology can deliver products and programs that influence behavior, but now it's really, the lab's work is really about how do you help people change behavior so they can be happier and healthier. And that includes how do you create products and services to help people do that. And Will was one of my students in the most recent class. Every year I teach a different class on a different topic on something that I think really matters. So I get a, it always has to do with human behavior in some form, but I get to pick the topic. And Will joined my class in 2019. And Will, with that, I'm going to introduce you so you can explain about you and the class we did. Then we'll talk about the upcoming class, I guess. Yeah. So I'm a Stanford student, and I have the privilege of being BJ's Behavior Design Lab. I took the class last spring when our focus was all about screen time reduction. How can we match people with different solutions and strategies to help them get off their screens and into the world more often? Yes, please. Yes. I know, right? Your work. <laughs> <laughs> so important, especially for people my age in college. But we ended up producing a tool called Screen Time Genie that you can find online at screentime.stanford.edu. And in the lab, we've done a lot of other work on screen time reduction, on financial wellness. But I mean, the reason we're here on this podcast is because one of the projects that we're most focusing on, the one that speaks to me the most personally, is climate action. And how can we give climate professionals the behavioral psychology tools to make real impact? And that was a topic in the last class, or that's one that's coming up in the next one? That's coming up. So the one in 2019 was about screen time. And then we ran a pilot this summer and Will led the pilot on teaching professionals who are working in climate change and climate action, training them in uh, behavior design. And we learned a lot from that, including the need to do that. And so I had already planned out a different topic for my class, but then I changed my mind for 2020. And the class is going to be all about climate action and developing a way to teach and train professionals like, Will, you said it in a great way. How do you help people that are professionals in this space understand how human behavior works? So their efforts in creating products and programs and however you want to talk about those solutions will actually be impactful rather than useless. For example, what does not work is just giving people information. Oh, if we just give them information, data and projections and visualization, then people will change their behavior. That's an assumption. And I call it the information action fallacy. That does not work. So what we're all about is explaining and teaching how you can help people change their behavior. And it's not information alone. 
And so when you're looking at an area, whether it's climate change or screen time or health or any number of other categories, how much of the the tenets of the behavior change philosophy that you ascribe to and, and teach is transferable from area to area? Is it like a, a certain percentage carries over and another percentage changes, or is it a totally different recipe, or is it a totally the same recipe every time? Pretty much all of the steps and models in behavior design apply in every area. The way it differs depends on only on the behavior type. If you're trying to get people to do a behavior one time, that's different than trying to get people to create a new habit and do it from now on. But still, you would use models and methods from behavior design, but designing for a one-time action is different than designing for a habit, which is different than designing to get people to stop a habit. There's actually 15 ways behaviors can change, but those three ways are, it's a tidy summary of those. One-time action, ongoing behavior, a habit, and stopping behavior, stopping a habit. And the way you design for each of those is different. And so you you talked a bit about how climate's going to be a topic in your upcoming class. I guess, what is the state of your effort and ambition towards climate? And then maybe walk me a bit through either Will or, or BJ, whoever makes sense, of the approach that you're taking to applying these methodologies to climate action. Will, why don't you give a summary of the pilot we ran this summer? And I'll chime in from time to time, and we'll talk. also talk about wh- what's next for us. Yeah, so this past summer, summer of 2019, we took 14 individu- individuals who were working full-time in climate. So people from the nonprofit world like the Nature Conservancy, also municipalities like the city of Antwerp in Belgium and Providence, Rhode Island, and even people from education like Princeton University, just people from all sorts of backgrounds. But the commonality was that they were all working full-time on climate action. Now, what we did is we met with them every two weeks virtually online for about three months and trained them in behavior design tools and methods and basically guided them to how do you get real behavior change results in the programs and products that you're developing. And so, you know, that was like, which methods can you use to get really specific in defining the behavior you're changing? Or how do you know which segment of your audience, your target audience to start with? So those are some of the things that we covered with behavior design. And the idea was just to really amplify their impact as best as we could. And so how long did the program go on for? So it was a pilot. Five sessions with one session every other week for a total of about three months. And what'd you learn? Oh, so many learnings. I, I'll share okay. my learnings with so, BJ. Maybe you share some okay. of your learnings. Well, let's make it a bit of a game, Will. You share a learning, I share a learning, you share a learning till we run out. And like it's ping pong very fast. Okay. Number one. <laughs> My eyes are just going to follow the ball. Boom, boom. Yeah, you follow the ball. <laughs> yeah. I mean, number one for me is one hour is not a lot of time to cover material. <laughs> one hour per session. The biggest learning for me was these professionals were wonderful people, but they had no systematic training in human behavior change. And so the need to help them and others like them just massive. Uh, Another one is it's so much more powerful when somebody is going to the training with a project. We had some people who are working on new programs at Princeton University to reduce, to make the campus more sustainable. Having that as a container with which they could apply behavior design, way better. Another learning was that teaching people virtually through video conferencing works really well. It's not as good as in person. But all things considered, it's a great way to teach this. One surprise for me, I'll say, is the end of politics. We had some people who were working on climate campaigns and who were kind of trying to lobby their government officials. And 
I think that was a new, tricky, thorny, interesting area to apply behavior design to. One of my surprises was about at the end of class three, I was like, oh no, I'm doing a bad job. They're not getting it. Oh no, what do we do? And then on class four, they were awesome. So they were learning more than I expected. I mean, I'm really particular about how I teach and just always trying to assess, is this working? And if not, you change your approach. But even though I felt like, well, do you remember this? Where I was like, oh, I don't think they're really getting it. And then they came back in the next class and they were applying it well and they got it. So I don't know how I generalize that. It's just, it was probably you, Will, working between sessions and looking at their homework and responding is you filled in all the gaps that I left empty. Back to you, Will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cheat on this one a little bit, but this was my first time seeing BJ teach virtually. And I've... Wow. <laughs> I've learned so much just about teaching virtually that was totally surprising and took me kind of by surprise by how effective online trainings could be. One of my surprises was nobody. So we had people apply. Well, we had how many people apply to join us? Close to 50. Yeah. And then we went through that and we picked the people that we thought could, we could help them the most and ended up with 14 or 12 or something like that. And the surprise was nobody who applied was about changing policymakers' behavior. And I think that's part of the puzzle is how do we get our elected officials, some people. It was more about, you know, how do we get students at Princeton to change and so on. And I kind of wanted somebody in, in the training that would be about how do we change policymakers or how do we change policy. And I think that's coming. But that was a surprise we didn't get that angle among the people we worked with. Do you guys feel like, I mean, could I just come to you with like a laundry list of things I would like to change behaviors on in the climate world, me or a group of people or an organization or whoever, the government or, or whoever, is there anything that would throw you guys where you say, oh, we're not really equipped to do that? Or is it like, whatever you got, we can do? It's kind of the second. Yeah. Any type of aspiration or outcome or strategy Behavior design, this the systematic thing that we do that we call behavior design is set up to take that abstraction and then figure out what are the behaviors and what are the best behaviors and then how do you make those a reality. So what we don't do is set strategy because that's beyond the scope of behavior design. And we're not climate scientists. So we're not like the ones saying, oh, we need to reduce carbon footprint of 13%. That's not the things we come up with. But if you come to us and say, hey, we're going to reduce the carbon footprint of Princeton by 20% by 2022, boom, that's where we pick up. And there's methods where we can take that and move it all the way towards implementation. Yeah. So if it's all right, it'd be great to just talk about one or two specific examples from the pilot if you're allowed and if you have to generalize it or anything to protect anonymity, that's fine, but just something to be illustrative of the kinds of problems and then maybe the tactics. And then it'd be great after that. I've got a laundry list of things I'd love to just kind of throw at you guys and, and get some insight from you in terms of if you were to tackle it in one of these trainings, how you'd go about it. Great. Well, I will give a very unsatisfactory answer to your first question. And then, Will, you might be able to supplement and make it better. 
you just changed my behavior because now my my whole mood, or maybe it's my mood. It's like I'm already dejected and you didn't even give your answer yet. I know. No, I'm setting your expectations <laughs> low so I can exceed your expectations. You know, in training people from these different organizations, we basically taught them how to use the methods and apply them. We didn't take like one organization and solve for that. There's times when I've done that outside of climate action. So for, well, I just went to Australia two weeks ago, worked with the financial arm of the Australian government and trained 22 people just within that area, specifically in what they're doing and their outcomes and specific things. So we worked on their projects. With this kind of training where people are coming from even different countries and working on different parts of the puzzle, we teach them how to use the methods, but I don't have a really good like here's what happened. And then now suddenly Princeton students are all line drying their laundry and they're not using, you know, the, I don't remember getting that granular in terms of having them report back to us, but they did do homework that maybe you read more carefully than I did, Will. So do you remember any specific cases or outcomes from the summer training? Yeah, well, I think a great study, a great case study of where behavior design comes into play with climate action might actually even predate this training with uh, the work that you did with California State Parks um, a few years back, Pedro. I think that's really illustrative because we've had the time since you went in and helped them with that implementation to actually measure results and see the year-over-year returns. Maybe you want to share that story? Yeah, quick. I'm a huge fan of parks and open spaces. And this was during a time in California, I think it was 2008, where budgets were being cut and parks were being closed. And as a training for some people I was working with, I had the park, the people that oversee regional parks in Sonoma County, we went in to offer a free training to them. And we shared behavior design. We walked them through these methods applied to the problem of they needed to generate more revenue. So I didn't tell them they needed more revenue. I just said, hey, what are the problems we can solve here? And they said, we need more revenue or we have to close parks. So that was the vague aspiration we worked on. It was a three-hour session. And they assumed at the time that the leader assumed she thought, oh, it's app. An app is going to be our answer. And I was like, uh, and you know, I didn't say this, but it's like, no, I don't think an app is going to save the parks. And her team didn't believe that either. But she was on. Well, as we went through the system, as we went systematically through the process, what we learned is, and everyone agreed on, including the director, is like, nope, it's not an app. What we need to do is sell more annual passes to the parks. So everybody, so through the systematic process of behavior design, that ended up being the behavior they were going to design for and everybody aligned and agreed. And then the you know, session was up and I went away. It was a few years later when they lost in an election to get some funding on a ballot initiative. And I got back in touch with the director. I said, look, I can help you in the next election. And she says, oh, by the way, what you did for us years ago was so impactful. We were able to triple our sales of the annual park passes, which meant a million dollars of revenue extra a year for the last seven years since we did this or whatever it was. And that meant we didn't have to close a single park. In fact, we acquired new land and we didn't lay anybody off. And boom, now we're looking at the next election and fast forward, they did pass the ballot initiative. So it was a very three hour training but it helped them figure out what is the right behavior to design for, which then led to an outcome that I'm pretty happy, 
proud of because I live in Sonoma County part of the year and I love the park system and the fact that they could keep all the parks open and acquire new lands, amazing. So that can be the impact of behavior design. Thanks for bringing up the example, Will. So is there a heavy overlap then between behavior design and and strategic business consulting? Because it seems like in that analogy, I mean, I could see McKinsey or, or a McKinsey-like entity, maybe with more affordable rates going in and, <laughs> and, and advising the, the park systems on, on that kind of issue. Oh, that's a hard question. I'll just say this. There is a difference in that everyday people can learn how to do behavior design and learn how to apply it. Okay. And I teach a two-day training that I call a boot camp. And at the end of boot camp, people do not need my help anymore. They are independent and they can do it on their own. That's the purpose of the class at Stanford. That's what we're hoping with the climate action training. We're really, what we're working on right now is can we do this in four one-hour sessions? I know the two-day program works, but that's 16 hours of training. So what Will and I and others in the lab are working on and will work on, and we'll pilot and pilot again until we figure it out, is what's the minimal time of training that then makes these climate change professionals so they can do it on their own and they don't need my help and they don't need McKinsey. They can do it on their own. If the methodologies carry over from problem to problem to problem and vertical to vertical to vertical, then why does it, why does climate need its own separate one? And what's different about the climate one than the health one or the business model one or or any of the others? Well, I'll I'll just give you the the answer. I'm part-time at Stanford and I run the lab and I teach once a year and then I have a foot in industry. In industry, that's how I make money is teaching behavior design. And so people from companies you've heard of and startups you haven't pay me to teach them. When it comes to climate action, and basically I'm giving the I'm giving my IP and my methods and all of this and putting it together as is uh it's it's what I need to do. And sure, I could charge people for this, but that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is make this as freely available to these professionals as I can. So that's really the answer, right? I mean, it's it's valuable methods. I've taken 20 plus years to create models and I love teaching it. And it's the best professional training. Most people, 95% plus people who come to my bootcamp say it's the best professional training they've ever had. That's great. I'm not eager to package it up and give it out to free to these multi-billion dollar companies, right? But I am eager to package it up and share it with climate change professionals. I, that's just the right thing to do. So climate change professionals. So the, the answer then is that it's not actually a climate specific thing, but you're calling it climate because the only people that can access it for free are, they have to prove that they're working in climate. There's some like approval process to unlock the materials. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, more or less. I mean, it, essentially they get, a, they get a scholarship. Other than name, it, it's more like a, it's like a, a climate access key versus a climate program. Yeah, or a scholarship or whatever. Yeah. So you, you guys are comped. You're comped. You're in. Let us help you. Yes, it's valuable training, but it's free for you. If it's okay, can I throw out some scenarios off the top of my head of, of different climate behavior change and get some insight from, from you guys on, on how we might tackle them? Yeah, it feels like a game show. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is I'm digging. I'm digging the uh, the three people here. It like changes everything. Just one little change, and it's like a whole different show. Bam. Yeah. Three relationships. 
But let's see. So I am from whatever. Let's say I'm from the, maybe it doesn't matter where I'm from, but I'm tasked with with reducing aviation emissions by 80% in the next 15 years. I'm just making up these numbers. And I, th- I think that there's these electric jets that might be coming, but gosh, like they're so far away and who knows if they'll be ready for prime time. I mean, even when they are, they're going to be cost competitive, et cetera. And it seems like the thing I can control the most is just getting people to fly less. So h- how can we get there, PJ and Will? The first step in behavior design to get clear on that aspiration. So Jason, I'd say, hey, let's get clear. Is it reducing the aviation emissions or is it getting people to fly less? Those are related but different aspirations. Well, my charter is to reduce emissions, but I'm telling you that I believe that getting people to fly less is the thing most in my control and that I can bank on. And therefore, I feel like it's got to be a meaningful piece of the portfolio. Exactly what percentage? I don't know, because some of these engineering breakthroughs are hard to predict and how quickly batteries are going to, the price is going to fall and and, the, and what kind of range they're going to get for some of the long haul flights. But I know if I can just get people off the planes, then it's going to lead to less emissions. So I don't know how much of it we'll need to do, but I think it's a lot. Okay, great. And now there's two directions we could go here. And if, if it's a longer session I have with you, I'd say, great, well, let's back up to the, the bigger aspiration of, of reducing aviation emissions. And because getting people to fly less is jumping to a one conclusion, there could be other things too. So let's stay with the broader one and let's do this method we call magic wanding. So if we could wave a magic wand, so this is step two in behavior design. Step one is get clear on the aspiration. And in this case, I've said, no, let's back up. We can take the more specific one on later, but let's back up and just decrease aviation admissions. If we could wave a magic wand and get anyone to do anything that would lead to a decrease in aviation emissions, what would we wish for? Who would do what? And we would use that kind of thinking, this magic wand thinking, to come up with a whole bunch of different behaviors. What could airline regulators do? What could the president of the United States do? What could people who make planes do? What could passengers do? What could conference organizers do? So we would come up with a whole bunch of different things and different actors, including leaders and companies and governments. And we would explore, pretend we have magical powers. We can get people who make planes to do anything. And we would come up with behaviors that we would want them to do. And then we would prioritize those behaviors along two dimensions. So say we come up with 50 or 60 options. And one of those would be to get airline passengers to fly less. That would be one of the 60 options, right? And then we would sort those. On a, and Will, I'm going to hand off to you to explain the focus mapping dimensions. But then we prioritize those 60 different behavior options in a method in behavior design we call focus mapping. Will, do you want to outline how the focus mapping works and what the dimensions are? Focus mapping essentially takes into account two key questions. One is how effective is this particular behavior at helping us reach our outcome and aspiration? And so what you would do is you would take these 60 behaviors, you would line them up in a vertical axis from highly effective at the top to not highly effective at helping us reduce emissions. And you'd line them all up in that axis first. And once you have that done, you then take into account the other end is how likely or how able are we to get people or ourselves to do this behavior? And you actually adjust the different behaviors right or left horizontally 
until you have them all in places that you think they belong. And what naturally surfaces is that the behaviors in the top right corner that are both high impact and you have high feasibility, you have a high likelihood that you can get people to do them are the ones that you should naturally gravitate towards that will have the impact you want and you'll be able to implement them. So in the early part of behavior design, we explored a wide range of who could do what, including passengers. And then we sort them like Will explained. And then we pick the behaviors in the upper right-hand corner are called golden behaviors. They're the ones that have the most impact in reducing aviation admission. And they're the ones that are the most feasible. So those are the ones we focus on, say there's three of them. And then we forget all the rest. And let's say one of those three is to get passengers to fly less. So that would be an example of using behavior design, even at the highest, most abstract level. And then when you're like, oh, we're going to get people to fly less, that wasn't a guess. And that wasn't a McKinsey $5 million research project. It was a process of exploration widely in behavior design, prioritizing the items, and then picking the high impact items that we can actually get done. So one question that comes to mind then is that impact is, I guess some things are more clear cut, but in many cases it's subjective and feasibility is also in some cases clear cut and in many cases subjective. And so if you're just sitting in front of a whiteboard, how can you have any confidence that you're eyeballing those correctly? Good. Will, do you want to talk about the group version of focus mapping? Yeah. It's a great question. And there's no perfect answer, but there is a way to bring the power of groups and many minds to this. And so with group focus mapping, we're really leveraging the wisdom of the crowds. What you do is you get your entire team or everyone who's a stakeholder in the same room. And you go through the focus mapping exercise where you're collectively trying to decide on the y-axis, where do things fall impact-wise? So you have the research scientists in the room, you have the decision business person in the room, you have the people on the ground implementing it, and you rank them that way both in the Y and X axes. And at the end, we even like to do a little bit of a bonus round where people who feel like something is out of place can actually use like a wild card, play wild card and switch or adjust the position of a particular behavior. And what that generally does is it leverages the wisdom of the group, everyone's individual expertise in a way that surfaces those golden behaviors with higher confidence that those are actually the behaviors that our team has bought into, that our team is convinced will be impactful. and is now going to put our energy towards implementing. Another question that comes to mind is that if I were, let's say, the ALS Foundation or the, you know, the organization that, that's responsible, you know, a nonprofit that's focused on fighting ALS, the Ice Bucket Challenge was this viral sensation that raised a ton of money for ALS. The reason I bring it up is that no matter how many people you had in that room looking at that impact and feasibility and the, and the golden behaviors, I don't think you would have put that as, you might've put it high impact if, if this viral thing takes off, but you're certainly not gonna put it high feasibility. So I don't think it would have made the list. So, I mean, it seems like the outliers can be the ones that like carry the day, almost like venture capital returns. And, and so do the outliers make the list in this model? Yeah, they do. The step, step number two in behavior design, the magic wanding step. And the reason I call it magic wanding is you want to let go of all constraints. And it's like, we can get anybody to do anything, including pouring buckets of ice over the head and recording it. So the best magic wanding sessions will be very creative and very out there and kind of crazy. Now, the totally impossible ideas will sort out in the focus mapping. Like, oh, no, we're not going to be able to get people, not be able to get students to 
commit the future income of all their children to climate crisis. That's not going to happen. So that will drop out. But the creative ideas can emerge and be like, sure, we could, you know, that might be possible. There's a few steps later in behavior design. There's a testing method called snap testing. And in snap testing, you test an idea in four hours or faster. So even though an idea might feel a little bit crazy, the fact that it only takes four hours or less to test it really lowers the bar. So you wouldn't reject a crazy idea like that. You'd say, hey, let's test it. Let's, let's see if anybody's willing to do this, share it on social media and see who reacts. And in fact, in the work I did with the Australian government, we specifically worked on a project of how do we get millennials to talk about our website and they have a website called money smart which is the guidance from the australian government how do we get millennials to post about that online and they came up with some really crazy ideas and then we prioritize them and i'm hoping they're testing some of them in this snap testing way so it's not investing a ton of resources if you do snap testing according to how we outline it you'll have a signal whether you go or no go on that idea. And so you can test these crazy things quickly. Now that said, viral is a crazy thing. I mean, it's very hard to design for viral, but you can come up with pretty odd ideas and you can test them quickly. And if nobody responds, then you give it up and you go to the next one. If you get some signal that it might work, then you try it again and try it in different ways. So, I mean, you mentioned, I think you said that when you do this for corporates are two days, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So two days and then you get a deliverable. But a lot of times what happens is that once the rubber meets the road and you start doing like the equivalent of what you guys did for a pilot before you roll something out at wider scale, these corporates, they'll do pilots and then they'll learn and then they'll retrench and then they'll pick the next experiment and they'll like experiment and experiment and experiment. But if you just do the static two days and then hand them a deliverable, like wouldn't this process need to keep running after the next batch of learning and then like the realities and the constraints change? which is exactly why the Australian government teaching 22 people there. I mean, that's a long flight, but I'm happy to do it because now there's the whole team has a shared set of models around how behavior works. They're all thinking about it in the same way. And the whole team has a shared set of methods around behavior work. So there's critical mass within the team. And then they have me do a keynote that reached 450 different financial stakeholders across Australia that allowed me to share some of the most fundamental stuff of behavior design. So by teaching not just one person in an organization, but a number of people, and in this case, the whole 22 people, then they're better able to continue to use the methods and the models and not just revert back to the old ways of doing things. Okay, so you're more about teaching people this way of thinking and this framework and process than you are about getting to an answer at any one point in time. Yeah, teach a method, teach a system, and then let people apply the method and system. And this is why working with climate change professionals and doing it at scale seems so important to me and to us is if we can help train them in behavior design and models about behavior that are actually that actually work and methods they can implement on their own and build that within this community of climate change professionals like that's just how they think about things and do things then we feel like we can move the needle not just for princeton or the city of toronto or whatever but within that whole community of people who care about this and it will become the de facto method 
of how to think about climate change and how to design for behavior change within that domain. So is there a big leap from learning the skills to actually driving sustained and widespread implementation within these organizations? And I guess a follow-up, since I tend to ask things in two, is does the success rate from an implementation and deployment standpoint vary widely across your clients, or is it pretty consistent? And what does that look like? Well, there are two overriding guidelines, or I call them maxims. Will, do you want to talk about this or should I? The maxims? Yeah. Okay. And if you map to these maxims, you have a good chance of succeeding. If you don't, you won't. Will, why don't you pick up and you hand back to me whenever you want? You guys have taken this show on the road before. You're too, you're too coordinated here. I don't, but it's, it's suspect. <laughs> this, this seems well prepared, well rehearsed. It was the climate training. <laughs> Will's just incredibly capable. So I just hand all of the hard questions to him. Go, Will. <laughs> yeah, there are two guiding principles in behavior design. We consider them maxims. Number one, help people do what they already want to do. And this is why the information action fallacy is kind of a thing, is because just informing somebody does not necessarily mean that they'll want to do the behavior you're designing for. So help people do what they already want to do. And not everybody will already want to do the thing you're designing for, but there will be a population, there will be a segment of that population that needs that extra push. They already have the motivation, they just need to get there. And the second maxim is to help people feel successful, is to create emotions, to create positive psychology around whatever action they're doing that is going to help sustain the behavior change in the way that you're referencing, the way that's sustainable, in the way that is long-term. And I'll hand that back to you, BJ. So for example, let's... I don't know why we're picking on Princeton. The woman that worked from Princeton, she was amazing. That's probably why. So let's say Princeton goes through the process, magic wanding, focus mapping, and it's like, oh my gosh, one of the most impactful and feasible things we can do is get students to dry their laundry on the line and not put it in the dryer. Okay. So like Will said, not every student is going to want to do that, but there's going to be a segment. So they could create a program saying, hey, put your life on the line or whatever they say. And they say, here's how. So they put up a bunch of clothes drying places that students can use and so on. The students who want to do this are their customers. The students that don't want to do it, don't try to convince them. They're not your customers. So you get good at finding the students that want to do it and make it really easy. And then as they do it, help them feel successful. That's what wires in the habit. That feeling of success is what would wire in the habit, what would make them want to do it again, and it also causes them to advocate. So let's say Susan's out there, she's hanging her laundry up in Princeton, and she sits down and and reads while it's drying, and she sees something that says, oh, you've, you've done X, Y, and Z to help save the planet, so she's feeling successful. She does that week after week. She's gonna start talking that up and possibly persuading her colleagues who didn't want to do that. They just want to throw it in the regular electric dryer. Hey, come to the the laundry drying lines with me and hang out. So those maxims are, they really characterize every product or service in any domain that has gone big. You can look at everything that's gone big. It helps people do what they already want to do. It helps them feel successful. And so after kind of being in denial <laughs> on those principles for at least 10 years, I finally said, yep, those are the things. There we go. Let's call it maximum one, maximum two. 
and that's what you're designing for. If you don't do that, you will not succeed. If you do that, at least you have a chance. It doesn't guarantee you, you'll succeed, but you have a chance. So to your larger question of how do you get this to be institutionalized, well, you've got to make sure that you are within that organization or that community, you're helping people do what they already want to do. And yeah, there's going to be a segment that doesn't want to forget about them, come up with another product or program for those people to help them do what they want to do, and then help people feel successful. And those are the overriding principles. But PJ, we've spent two days together and it sounds so easy when you're talking about it and I can visualize so clearly how it can have an impact. But now that I'm leaving, I already feel like all this information is leaving my head. What advice do you have for me? I don't want to get back to the office on Monday and feel like all this great ground that we covered is lost. Yeah, well, you've come with teammates. And we have you mark your books in a certain way, like what's my action items? What are my insights? There's a way in the training. I've worked for years. Teaching's really, really important to me and doing a great job is important. So I've created these ways to make what they've learned very actionable and so they can go back and hit the ground running. But for listeners of this, the bootcamp, not everybody can come to the bootcamp and I'm not saying come to the bootcamp. I'm really, really happy that my book, Tiny Habits, is hitting the shelves on January 1st, 2020. And even though that's written for everyday people, it has these, these same methods and models in the book. So anybody can get the book and read through it and then apply it in this way. But I think what we really want, Will and I, is that you stay tuned to the climate action training out of Stanford and you join us for that. And then we'll create, and that's free. You don't have to pay anything for that. And then we will have resources where you can connect with others in the community, help each other, support each other. And we'll probably do refresher trainings along the way. That's probably part of it. So we're in process figuring this out, but learning how many one-hour sessions do we need to do? What exactly do we do? What are the worksheets and tools that we provide? And then there's probably a community of practice that we appoint uh, people to and we do a refresh training or we add new stuff as needed. And BJ and I have put up a simple landing page for anyone who's interested who might be listening at behaviordesign.info slash climate action. And that's where we'll be putting up all of our updates and materials and how you can get involved in the next trainings. In terms of the climate problem, I don't know how, I know you guys are just turning your attention to it, but do you have any view as you sit today as it relates to what areas can most stand to benefit from this behavior training? I think so. Jason, are you familiar with Project Drawdown? I am, actually. Dr. Jonathan Foley did an episode that we'll be publishing soon. Wonderful. On my climate journey. Yeah, so I was looking at, I'm new to the climate space, so I was doing some research just this past week, and Project Drawdown is this research project that produced this objectively ranked list of solutions for the climate crisis right? And they applied a lot of research to it. And something I found really interesting is that of the top five solutions of the dozens and dozens that they investigated, numbers three and four were, I thought, were behavior change, behavior design would really shine. Number three is reduced food waste, which is, yes, an industry and restaurant problem, but also a household problem and a lifestyle problem. And number four is increasing plant-rich diets, which is, again, behavior change, lifestyle change that comes from the individual level, from the grassroots up. And so I think in those areas in particular, I feel like behavior design could have a huge, huge impact. And does motivation matter? And what I mean by that is if you're trying to drive an outcome for the climate, let's say, 
does it matter, for example, whether Tesla's motivation is to make a lot of money or or people buying Teslas? Does it make a difference whether their motivation is to keep the planet livable by humans and other life forms, or if it's just to drive a really nice, fast, sporty, awesome car? That is such a great question. I think it's more of a question about ethics. And let me let me give an example. So let's say back to Princeton University, you decide, hey, we're going to get students never use plastic water bottles. You're always going to use a reusable one. And we're going to do that in mass. Oh, and by the way, in Australia, they have this thing called a keep cup they use for coffee. Like it's apparently really uncool to use a disposable coffee cup. So now let's say a student doesn't really care about the environment but because of social pressure. He or she gets a glass water bottle and doesn't have a plastic one. Well, great. So that's fine. You got some impact. Then it's kind of more a philosophical debate about does that matter? Well, you, you got her to change behavior and maybe with time, she will start thinking of herself as I'm the kind of person who cares about the environment. Because look, I'm carrying around this glass water bottle. I'm not using the plastic ones. I'm watching my own actions and my actions are about sustainability. So therefore, when I'm doing something else, I need to behave consistently with my identity. Now, I know that dynamic works. Your question's broader than that, but the dynamic that works is if somebody does a behavior and feels successful, even a tiny one, they start seeing themselves in a new way with a new identity. And so maybe one thing to consider is what's the smallest, most beneficial thing somebody can do and feel successful about it to change their identity from somebody who's like, no, life's short, I'm going to live just for myself to, no, I'm somebody who cares about the planet and about humans and, and not just humans, all life on planet Earth in the future and you'll shift their identity. Now, I know that happened to me as a vegetarian, like years ago, I became a vegetarian in the 1980s for selfish reasons. I was studying, I wanted to be more alert in my chemistry classes, and I shifted to vegetarianism and I did better in school. But with time, I'm talking just a few months, I met other vegetarians, they became my friends, I started going to events about animal rights and so on, and I started thinking differently about that. So my reasons for being vegetarian shifted, but it started with something that was kind of selfish and then it became broader over time. So change leads to change. And the thing that I see in my tiny habits research, I've seen over, since 2011 researching that is when somebody does a behavior and feels successful, that shifts their identity, it recrafts their identity, and then you have these ripple effects and they start doing other behaviors to be consistent with that new identity. And where does the tragedy of the commons fit into all of this? And the reason I ask is that if you're trying to lose weight, that directly affects you. If you're trying to get up your financial health, that directly affects you. If most problems, it's like you're putting it front and center because it matters to you. But with climate change, it's like in the Tesla example, you're putting it front and center because it's a cool car. And they're looking cool to people. Yeah. Yeah. But actually with climate change, like some of those, some of the areas that we need to decarbonize will fit nicely into that paradigm, but a lot of them won't. And so we need to get people caring about the public good and doing things and maybe may even making sacrifices at their own level. And again, this is a, a debatable point, but I, there's a lot of people that think this. So for those people, right, how do you do that? And are there other problems that have been solved in this way? Well, you start where you can start. 
with the people who want to do what you're advocating. So you help people do what they want to do. And you don't grieve too much and don't waste time on the people that aren't on board with this. I just, let's start where we can start. And there are millions of people out there that want to live in a more sustainable way, millions and millions that don't know how yet. And if you say, here's what you can do and we've made it easy, you don't have to motivate them to do it. You just have to match them with the right behavior, golden behaviors and make it easy to do. Let me give a personal kind of a, I'm probably not going to do a class on this, but one of the things I'm a huge fan of is getting people to work from home. So rather than getting in the car and commuting and all the stress and the traffic and the emissions, let's find ways to help more people work from home. And not everybody wants to do that, but those who can, I mean, it's a specific thing that some people would love to do. And there's probably millions of people out there that would love to work from home and not commute. It's just not available to them yet, or they don't know how to ask their boss or the company doesn't know how to manage those people. So let's start where we can and help people who want to do the right thing and not wring our hands or get distracted by trying to solve everything at once. Anything that I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Well, the most basic question, can we change human behavior? And the answer is yes. Can we change everybody's behavior? No. But I just think we... We're bringing a piece of the puzzle to the table with behavior change and methods for doing that. And other people need to look and see what they can bring, other pieces of the puzzle. And we just got to do what we can do. There's just, I think for many of us, it's probably true for you, Jason, and probably everybody listening to this, or most people listening to this, to turn away from this problem and not do what we can. That would be morally wrong. And it would be hard for me to sleep at night to be teaching a class on e-commerce or trying to get people to buy more stuff and not do something like this. I mean, I think we should stop buying stuff and I think we should instead <laughs> take our talents and the limited time we have on this planet to do the, the most good we can. And so Jason, thank you for inviting me and us. Thank you for being on a climate journey and sharing it so openly and bringing a community together. Will, what do you think? What question <laughs> or topic should we talk about? Well, in terms of parting words, I just wanted to say, yeah, thank you, Jason. And if there are things, projects, programs that you're working on or any of your viewers, listeners are working on that you think our behavior design tools can be helpful to, we, this is why we're doing that work is we want to help we want to help people who are full-time working on climate, spending their precious hours working on this. And we want to help you become more effective. So hopefully keep your eye out for more work coming out of the lab. Keep an eye out for our training. And yeah, the climate problem is huge. And I'm so glad that we have people working on it in this way. When should listeners be on the lookout for that training and where might they go to find it? So the next training will probably start in the first quarter of 2020, sometime in January. People can sign up to hear news about that at behaviordesign.info slash climate action. And if for whatever reason that doesn't work out, our goal is by this summer, summer of 2020, we want to have an at scale, no cost to anybody version of our training available for any full-time climate professional to participate in. So keep your eyes out for that as well. And you can sign up now. I mean, just go to that page that Will talked about, share your name and email address, and we'll keep you posted. I think it's awesome, guys, for what it's worth. 
I think you are the masters of this craft and you're actively racking your brain and and running experiments and trying to mobilize to to take the things that you do and make them help on this important problem. And so I think if we do nothing else other than to get more people that are the masters of their crafts to think the same way that you guys are, then we'll be in a much better place. Right on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. And thanks, Will. Now back to work, back to your homework. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Pete. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.